The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning. As Chris said, my name is Eric Shelley. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. Um, Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Hope you enjoyed a long weekend. Um, As Chris mentioned in his announcements and as the the decorations indicate, we are in Advent. This is the first week of Advent. And Advent simply means coming. It's it's traditionally been a time of anticipation and preparation for Christmas and and for, for anticipating when we celebrate Christ's birth. Um, But I read this week that Advent hasn't always been uh, tied to Christmas. Up until about the 5th century, it was uh, was tied to other church events that took place around the start of the calendar year. And Christians would spend this time in prayer and in fasting for new Christians to be baptized during this season. And so even though Advent isn't typically associated with prayer and fasting, I just want to take a minute this morning and just just pray for Advent and pray for our hearts as we enter this Advent season. So just pray with me uh, here briefly. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this Advent season. We're thankful for time just to, to anticipate and prepare and celebrate your coming into this world in human form. And God, many of us have... Uh, I've celebrated many Advents in, in our life, and I just pray that um, it wouldn't become routine, that the celebration of, of a well-known Christmas story wouldn't be routine in our hearts, but that, that we would meet you and that we would see you in a new way this year. Um, God, I just pray for those who, who may, um, may experience you and, and may see you um, for the first time this year in this Advent season. Lord, I pray that you would move. I pray that you would reflect yourself, um, reveal yourself to, to the people that, um, whose hearts are, are, are ready, ready to know you. So, Father, we're thankful for our time this morning. Um, we're thankful for the opportunity to, to, to worship you and to talk about you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this year for Advent, we're going to be in Matthew's gospel. We're going to be, um, we're going to study Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. We'll be studying the first three chapters of the book of Matthew. And so hopefully you've got your Bibles. Uh, please open them up to Matthew 1. Each week we want, at Fathom, we want people to be reading the scripture in their own, um, in their own Bible, whether that's a, an actual book, an iPad, a phone, what have you. Uh, Matthew 1 will be in verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 1. And as you're turning there, I want to just start by giving a, just kind of a brief introduction to the gospel of Matthew before we look into our passage. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's the first of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Um, as the, the name of the book indicates, it was written by Matthew, who was also called Levi. This guy was a disciple of Jesus. He was also a Jewish tax collector before Jesus called him to be a disciple. And Matthew is writing his gospel account to a Jewish audience. Now, Mark, Mark wrote mostly to Romans. Uh, Luke wrote to the Greeks. John's gospel was more to a universal audience, but Matthew is writing specifically to the Jews. And so he's going to write about things that would be important and, and useful to the Jews. The book of Matthew has been called the teacher's gospel because Matthew kind of presents things in a way that's very suitable for teaching. They're kind of short or concise um, accounts. They're, he's usually more abbreviated than some of the other uh, gospel writers in some of his accounts. It's not always in chronological order. And a lot of his accounts have kind of an intro section and then like a summary, summary verse. And we're going to see that a little bit in our passage today. So whether you're writing a book 
or writing a gospel account, or maybe you're making a movie, you want to have an opening scene or an opening chapter that's, that's gripping. You, you want it to be able to, to grab the audience's attention and set the stage for what's to come. And I was thinking um, as I was preparing this about some of the great opening scenes or sequences of movies over the years. And the first one I thought of was uh, the opening scene of The Godfather. You have Vito Corleone sitting in his office. He's, like, he's got his cat on his lap, and he's petting it, and he's making, he's making business decisions. He's making guys offers that they can't refuse, and it kind of sets the scene for what The Godfather is all about. Who can forget the first time they saw the opening scene of Jaws? Some people won't, wouldn't go swimming in the, in the water just because of that scene from a movie. Or the opening scenes of Star Wars. They're all, they're all the same. They're all iconic. They've got the Star Wars logo and the, the, the famous music. They've got that yellow scrolling text that goes across the screen, and it just kind of fades to a scene from space. They're, they're iconic. They, they're all, they all start the same. But I think my favorite opening scene for a movie is for the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you guys remember this movie? This is, in, this is the first Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones. And it starts with Indy. He's wearing his iconic fedora hat, and he's hiking through the jungle. And then he gets betrayed by one of his guides, and so he pulls out his bullwhip, and he gets himself out of trouble. And then he discovers this cave, and he uses kind of his, his instincts, and he uses a little bit of luck, and he navigates his way through this cave full of spiders and skeletons and booby traps and blow darts. And then finally he finds this ancient golden idol, and he, he takes the idol, and as he does so, he, he triggers one of the booby traps, which is a giant uh, boulder that chases him through the entire cave. And as he's trying to escape, his other guide betrays him, and he eventually narrowly makes his escape, all the while he never loses his hat somehow. <laughs> Great, great opening scene to a movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's classic. I read that Steven Spielberg was actually worried that the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark would be too good and that the rest of the movie would be dull in comparison. A good introduction or opening scene is priceless. It sets the tone for what's to come. And it can help explain or kind of give the essence of the movie or what the character is all about. And the opening scene of Raiders, it shows you what Indiana Jones' character is all about. And it really shows you what the, the Indiana Jones movies are all about. They're about archaeology and adventure, about fedoras and bullwhips. Um, and, and a good intro can, can pull you in and make you want to keep watching or keep reading. Again, it conveys what's to come. And so I imagine when Matthew was writing his gospel account, he was probably thinking of a good way to start it, a good way to draw people in. And what better piece of writing to get people interested, excited, or hooked than a genealogy, right? I mean, nothing draws readers in like a long list of names, especially when you can't pronounce half of them. But that's what we've got in store today. This first week of Advent, we've got a genealogy. We've got a long list of names, but, but stick with me. I think God's got something to say to us in this long list of names. So let's turn to our passage. We're going to just start with verse 1, which reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I'm going to stop there. I know it's only one verse and one sentence into the passage, but this verse is an important one. Now, to a Jewish reader, this verse alone would be like that opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark or of Jaws. It would have gotten their attention because of three statements that Matthew makes in just this sentence alone. The first is he calls Jesus Christ. Now, 
Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ means Messiah or the promised divine deliverer of the Jews. And Matthew is applying this title to Jesus. Matthew is saying this is the genealogy of Jesus who is the Messiah. That would have been a very strong and bold proclamation back then to, to the Jews. And then next he refers to Jesus as a son of David. And any Jewish reader would know that the Messiah must come from the line of David. This was foretold back in 2 Samuel. Matthew is stating that Jesus is David's descendant, and therefore, through his lineage, he would qualify as, as Messiah potential. And then finally, he refers to Jesus as a son of Abraham. Matthew is saying that just like the Jewish nation came from Father Abraham, so did Jesus the Messiah. Back in Genesis, God promises Abraham that through Abraham, through him, all families on the earth would be blessed. All mankind would be blessed. And in linking Jesus to Abraham, Matthew is stating that this promise that God made to Abraham, this promise of blessing for all mankind is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is a blessing to all families, all generations, and all mankind. And so verse 1 would be an important and powerful verse to any Jewish reader. Just like a good opening scene of a movie, verse 1 captures the essence of what Matthew wants to say here about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, he's from the line of David, he's, he's fulfilling the Abrahamic promise to be a blessing. And it's easy for us to skip over or skim over this first verse, but that single sentence makes some very powerful claims. It would have really gotten the attention of a Jewish audience even before they read this genealogy. But we are going to read the genealogy. I'm going to go through it somewhat quickly, and then we'll circle back with some observations. Here we go in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So in verses 2 through 6, Matthew outlines the first few branches of Jesus' family tree. And some of these names may be familiar to you from the book of Genesis. It starts with Abraham, who we just mentioned. Then there's Isaac, Abraham's son. Jacob, Isaac's son. Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. And then a bit further, we have some other names that may be familiar. There's Boaz, who is a son of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in, in Jericho. If you recall from the book of Joshua... We read that Rahab, she, uh, she helped out some of the Israelite spies. The Jewish spies came to spy on Jericho, and she showed kindness to them. And so as, as a result, when Israel defeated and overthrew Jericho, God spared Rahab and her family. But God not only re redeemed her, her physical life, but he also redeemed her sinful life. She was spared, and, and, and she wasn't killed like so many of the other people in Jericho were. And God not only spared her life, but he included her in the family of the Messiah, in the family line. This mentions Ruth, and we read that Rahab's son, Boaz, he marries Ruth. And if you recall, about, about a year ago, we studied the book of Ruth, and, we, and Ruth was a Moabite, or, or she was a non-Israelite. She was a widow, and, and God redeemed her through Boaz. And she becomes King David's great-grandmother, and she's also included in the line of the Messiah. So this first passage takes us from Abraham to David, 
But let's keep going in verses 6 through 11 here. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Whew. Um, Verses 6 through 11, we start with David, and then we discuss the line of kings that follows him. Verse 6 mentions Solomon, who is David's son through, and the text says, the wife of Uriah. But this is Bathsheba, who you may know um, better than the wife of Uriah. And you might know this story. David was king, and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was married to Uriah, but David, David frankly, he, he wanted to be with Bathsheba. And so um, what the king wants, the king gets. David meets Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant, and they, they go on to have a son. But to cover up the pregnancy, David has Uriah killed. Their, their son is Solomon. David goes on to marry Bathsheba. But Matthew here still identifies Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah, not the wife of David. And I think this is pretty interesting. Matthew seems to be pointing out here that Solomon was born through adultery and through sin. But even through the sin of adultery, God is able to accomplish his will and his purpose. After Solomon, we have, we have a succession of kings, and these guys seem to go back and forth from, from good king to wicked king, from good king to wicked king. And um, that was kind of Judah's ch- track record at this time of kings as well. Some kings followed God closely, and as a result, so did the nation. Some kings departed from God and led the people astray. And so this line of kings goes from David to Jeconiah, and this takes us to the exile or the deportation to Babylon. And the, the exile occurred when the people of Judah, again, that's the tribe that Jesus uh, was from, they were taken captive into Babylon, and Judah was captive there for about 60 years before being able to return to Israel, to their homeland. And finally, verses 12 through 17, these wrap up the, the genealogy after the exile. So let's finish our passage. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the, va- the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So this section takes us from the exile to Babylon to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And a few things to note here. The first is that some of the names listed in this, this last section, are they don't even appear in the Old Testament. But one thing that I found interested in studying this is that the Jews kept very careful family records in public registries. And Matthew likely pulled the names that are listed in this section from these records. And Matthew's account, the accuracy of Matthew's account here has never been questioned. It's always been taken as, as accurate because of how well the Jews kept these records. And my point is just that, just like the rest of the scripture, 
this account of Jesus' family line can be trusted. It's accurate. Second thing, in, in speaking about Joseph and Mary, Matthew kind of deviates here from his earlier wording. Earlier in the passage, he mentions four women. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And each time Matthew lists the father, and then the son, his son, and then the mother. He says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. But here in verse 16, Matthew changes up a little bit. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And I think he changes the wording here. He says, of whom Jesus was born to indicate that Jesus didn't come from Joseph or Mary in the traditional sense. Jesus came from God. He was physically born of Mary, who married into Joseph's family line, but Jesus, the Messiah, came from God. And so that's just what Matthew's pointing out. He's saying that this is different. This is something different than a normal, a normal traditional birth. So that's Jesus' genealogy. That's, that's his family tree. And as I stated earlier, Matthew's writing to the Jews, and this passage, this, this genealogy would be very important to to the Jews. It would, be, it would be very important to their understanding of the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. But we're, we're predominantly non-Jewish Christians here. Um, we don't need, probably don't need a lot of convincing that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and in North America, we don't, we don't put nearly as much stock in genealogy or family lines as the Jews did at that time. So what do we do, what do, we do with this passage this morning? What do we do with this passage here in Advent? Well, I've got two takeaways for us, and I'll put them up on the screen. The first one is that Jesus' family tree was full of imperfect people because Jesus came to save imperfect people. And I've mentioned some of these already, but let's just briefly go through some of the names in this genealogy again. It starts with Abraham, and Abraham was, he was a liar. He frequently lied to save his own skin. He would often tell others that his wife, Sarah, was his sister because, because he was afraid of, afraid of, being, of, um, of, of being in, in trouble. He, he lied out of fear. Jacob lies to his father Isaac so he can steal his brother Esau's inheritance. Judah hired and slept with prostitutes. Um, in fact, his daughter-in-law Tamar, she was a widow and she was kind of being neglected. And so she dresses up as a prostitute so that Judah would hire her. And Judah does hire her. He hires his daughter-in-law, who's pretending to be a prostitute, and gets her pregnant, and she gives birth to twin sons, Zerah and Perez. And they're in the line of Jesus, of the, of the Messiah. Rahab was a prostitute living in Babylon. We've got King David, lust, adultery, murder, abuse of power. This guy Ahaz, he sacrificed his own son in an offering to another god and basically turned towards foreign gods throughout his entire reign as the king of Judah. And I could go on, but I think you get my point. Jesus' family line is full of imperfect people. It's full of sinners because Jesus came to save and redeem sinners. But there are also some other imperfections in Jesus' family line. And when I say imperfections... I'm speaking about in kind of that that time, that culture. They're not imperfections that that we would see, but to a Jewish audience at that time, these would be seen as imperfections. The first is that Jesus' family tree, his family line includes Gentiles. It wasn't just limited solely to Jews. 
In Matthew's times, Jews considered non-Jews or Gentiles to be second-rate or second-class citizens. Yet there, there are Gentiles such as Rahab, who was a Canaanite, Ruth, who was a Moabite. Both were used by God to continue the line of Messiah. It wasn't just uh, Jews that were included in this family line. Another imperfection in Christ's family tree is the prominence of women. And again, in that, those times, women were considered to be a lower class than men. But Matthew goes to great lengths to point out some of the women in this family line. I think that by talking about women so prominently, Matthew is telling us that women were highly important to God, that Jesus came to save women just as he came to save men. And then a third imperfection is younger siblings, especially younger brothers. They're also very prominent in Jesus' in Jesus' genealogy. And just like Jews or women, younger brothers were considered a lower class in Jewish, uh, in Jewish society. It was the older brother who received the birthright, who received the largest portion of the inheritance. The older brother was, was first in line for everything. They'd be first in line for king, to, to be king or what, or what have you. But Jesus' family tree is full of younger brothers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, Perez, and there's others in the genealogy that were all younger brothers. Again, these would have been considered unworthy of significant inheritance in the Jewish culture, yet God considered them worthy of being in the line of Christ. Jesus came from imperfection to redeem our imperfection. To illustrate this, I want to look at Jonah. Um, and not the swallowed by a whale Jonah. I'm talking about a different Jonah. I'm talking about this guy. I'm going to put up a slide. This is Jonah, the Shelley family dog. He's a, a, a black lab. Um, he's about a little over a year old. And last fall, we were looking for a puppy, and we, and we knew that we wanted an English Labrador retriever. And I just kind of love the, the big block head that these guys have, the kind of stocky build. Uh, they're great family dogs. They love the outdoors, so just a great fit for our family. Um, we wanted to get a puppy so that our daughters could experience kind of the cuteness and chaos that comes with, comes with raising a puppy. And so we started researching breeders. And with nearly all lab breeders, you can go into their website, and they'll, they'll have, a, have a, a posting about the upcoming litter of puppies. And they'll state that the next litter will come from this sire, which is the father, and this dam, which is, which is the mother. And you can click on either the sire or the dam, and you can see their full family line. For Jonah's mom and dad, we could go back four generations to see their lineage. We could see who the breeders were. We could see the American Kennel Club numbers of each of the dogs, DNA info. You see what color the dog was, whether it was black or yellow or chocolate. There'd be pictures of each of the, each of the dogs in the family line. And this stuff wasn't all that important to us. We, you know, we just wanted a, a healthy black lab. But um, to some people, this stuff is very important. They may want to one day breed their dog. They may want to show their lab. And so um, people will pay a lot of money for a lab with a good, good pedigree and a good family line. Lineage matters when it comes to certain dogs. Pedigree matters. The quality or the purity of the dog's family line is important. Starting with near perfection in the family line is very important. But the good news for us is that starting with perfection is not important to God. Starting with pedigree is not important to him. Starting in righteousness is not important to God. Because Jesus did not come to save the righteous or perfect people. He came to save the imperfect. 
And God isn't waiting for us to become righteous or become sinless before he will use us. He can and will use us where we're at. Now, we're not expected to stay in our sin, but God can certainly use us there. He can use us wherever we're at in our walk to accomplish his will. And that that should be good news for all of us. Whether it's a sin of lying like Abraham or Jacob or sexual sin like Rahab or David or sins of idolatry like, like so many of the, the, Israel, uh, the, the kings of the Old Testament, God can still bring about redemption in us through any of that. And that's my first takeaway again. Jesus' family was full of imperfect people because he came to save imperfect people. And my second takeaway this morning is this. Jesus' family tree was planted exactly where and when God wanted it. And as we looked at, at the characters and stories that are mentioned in this passage, there's, there's lots of remarkable stories. These, are, these stories make up the bulk of the Old Testament. And as you look at these stories, a prevailing theme that we see is how God worked in the lives of each of these people to further his plan and accomplish his will. In fact, one commentator says, this list of names is a vital part of the gospel record. It shows that Jesus Christ is a part of history, that all of Jewish history prepared the way for his birth. God in his providence ruled and overruled to accomplish his great purpose in bringing his son into the world. So Jesus' family tree was planted exactly where and, God, and when God wanted it. Now, when Anna and I moved into our house back in, in 2017, um, so we've been there about 13 years now, um, our house was built in the, in the 1970s, in the mid-70s. It was, um, we bought it from original owners. They were in their late 60s when they sold it to us. And so when we moved in, the house needed some updating. <laughs> it needed a lot of updating. Um, and so we've done this updating kind of over the course of the last 13 years. I think when you own a home, you're never fully done working on it, fully done updating it. Um, we're still kind of doing some of it today. But it hasn't just been the inside of the house that needed updating. Um, the outside needed, needed it as well. When we moved in, the property was overrun with, with juniper bushes. Now, juniper bushes are in a neck-and-neck tie with poison ivy for my least favorite parts of God's creation. I I don't like juniper bushes. If I I offend any juniper lovers out there, I'm sorry, but they're ugly, they're scratchy, they're dirty, dusty, they're full of spiders. They had to go, and they were everywhere on on our property. We couldn't see our next-door neighbor's house because of a 15-foot-tall juniper bush that was between the properties. It It was ridiculous. And so in our first few years in the house, we we began removing these juniper bushes. Um, Chainsaws, we had bobcats out there. Um, We were were yanking them out. We pulled out 18 total juniper bushes in all. And getting these bushes out of our yard was was great. It made the yard bigger. It created space for a garden. It created more flower bed space. And so we had all this flower bed space. And so I began replacing the junipers with other plants and flowers. And as I do so, I I kind of try to plan and anticipate, okay, if I plant this here, um, that might look good. Do I have enough space to plant something here? I try to take into account the plant's need for sun versus shade, or if it needed more or less water. You know, I kind of ask myself, if if this plant gets too big, is it going to block out a window or or choke something else out? Um, But inevitably, for some of these plants, I'd, I'd mess up. I'd have, to, I'd have to transplant things. It didn't, maybe it didn't grow well enough. It wasn't getting enough sun. Um, I didn't see the, the big picture fully enough when I first planted some stuff. Sometimes I'd, I'd just kill a plant altogether. It would, it would get too much sun or not enough water. Sometimes I needed to uproot and move something completely. I, didn't always, I wasn't always the best landscape designer. 
But thankfully for, for us, God's a little bit better at landscape design than I, I am. Some of my planning and replanning came from not knowing how a certain plant may grow in a certain area. Sometimes um, I didn't have a plan. I would just kind of say, hey, I'll, I'll try this plant here and, and see how it does. Um, I really didn't have a plan. I, would, I just kind of, kind of made it up as I went along. And it might be easy to think that that's how God works also, that he, he tries some things and then if it doesn't work, he'll just call an audible and try something else. It might be easy to think that God's just up there making it up on the fly, making it up as he goes. He might say, I'll try this person here for a while, and if she can't hack it, then I'll try something else. Or it might even be easy to think that God makes mistakes and needs a redo sometimes. I think that sort of thing is immensely popular today in our culture, but it also immensely underestimates God, his plan, and his sovereignty. It underestimates his creation design how he made us in his image, how he made us male and female. It underestimates his plan and design for where, when, how, and to whom we were born. And I think some of the biggest issues in our society today, even issues such as abortion or sexual orientation and other things like that, have significant influence from the false idea that God makes mistakes or that he doesn't have a plan or that my plan's better. But if you observe how God works throughout this genealogy, throughout what Matthew details here, then I think it becomes clear to see that God was at work and, and that he was at work carrying out a plan. It becomes clear that, that the plan didn't have any mistakes in it despite human sin and human imperfections. And if you believe that God has a plan, that he doesn't make mistakes, then you won't see your disqualification or your sin as a disqualification for God to use you. You won't see God acting or moving in your life as a matter of chance or coincidence. You won't see today's path, passage in Matthew 1 as, as simply a list of names. Rather, you'll see Matthew 1 as evidence of God unfolding a plan, unfolding his purpose and his will throughout human history. Because God uses people, Jews and non-Jews, righteous and sinners, men and women, young and old, king king and commoners to accomplish his purpose. Just like a good landscape designer, God plants the right person in the right place at the right time to accomplish his will, to bring a son into the world, to provide salvation to those who believe in his son. And so while the genealogy in our passage this morning ends with Jesus, it doesn't mean that God has stopped working in this way. The rest of the New Testament shows the same approach, that God uses imperfect people of all kinds to accomplish his purpose. Church, he's a good landscape designer. He's always at work. He's always planning and pruning, watering and nourishing to accomplish his will. And he's planted you and planted me exactly where he wants us, in the families that he's placed us in, in the neighborhoods where we live, with the skills and gifts, personalities and talents that we've got, with the strengths and weaknesses that we have because he's, he's going to use us to accomplish his purpose. Just like he did with Abraham or Rahab or David or Asaph or Joseph and Mary. And so as we start the Advent season, as we look towards Christmas for the next month, here's my encouragement and my, my reminder to you in the coming days and weeks, you're going to see lots and lots of images of Christmas trees. They're going to be everywhere. This year, when you see a Christmas tree, view that tree as a reminder of Christ's family tree. 
and how God had been growing that tree throughout all of history, culminating in the birth of Christ. But also remember that God isn't done working, that he's always planting, pruning, watering, and feeding. And remember that you're a part of Christ's family tree, and that God has planted you exactly where, when, and how he wants you to seek to accomplish his will, to love him and serve his kingdom, to love your neighbor and to show Christ's love to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your sovereignty and your plan and your will. We thank you for the way that we see it unfold throughout all of history the way we, we see it unfold through, from Abraham, through David, through the, line of, through the line of David, through Joseph, Mary, and ultimately to Jesus, Lord. And we thank you for the way that you've worked since then. That you sent your son in human form to live and to ultimately to die for us, to save us as imperfect people, as sinners, Lord. And we're thankful that he was willing to live that life and to die that death to redeem us from our sin. That he came from a line of imperfect people to save imperfect people. And God, I'm thankful that you continue to work this way, that you continue to save imperfect people through that death on the cross. And God, I don't know where people are this morning as they're coming out of Thanksgiving and into the Advent season. Lord, we're all sinners here and there may be sins that we're we're struggling with and there may be sins that maybe we're feeling um, have disqualified us in some way. But God, I, I pray that we would see the truth this morning that God can and will and does use imperfect people no matter what our sin is. And so Lord, I pray that we would bring that sin to you this morning that we would repent of it and that we would, we would turn towards you knowing that through Jesus, we're, we're cleansed of our sin. And so Lord, let that be a truth that we take with us this morning. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for sending your son and that through his death and resurrection, we are cleansed from that sin. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the season that we're in as we anticipate and celebrate um, your son's birth. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.